0: The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, January 9th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca so much news out of France. The perpetrators behind the Charlie Hebdo murders cornered and killed at a print shop near Charles de Gaulle Airport. Another situation resulted in the death of not just the terrorist, but the hostages he took at a kosher shop. So in moments like these, I monitor, I wait for actual news to develop as opposed to what CNN was doing before the police initiated their raids. We were told things like, now the print shop is the kind that will print business cards, can also print a leaflet. I swear That is how they filled the time. But there is another time-honored way of filling new space, lifestyle features. On the cover of today's Wall Street Journal, the trend of cuddlers for hire. But the thing is, in 2013, a New York State woman opened the Snuggery, same idea. And in September of that year, there was this... Portland's first professional cuddler says for $60 an hour, she'll be the big spoon or the little spoon. Wait a minute. Just think about that big spoon, little spoon thing for a second. Think about your spoon drawer. It's not the big or the little spoons that are connected to each other. It's the spoons that are the same size that fit together. A teaspoon and a soup spoon do not fit together. I recommend you use that analogy during your next breakup. But the point is, this isn't news because it's not new. Oh, wait, here's the new part. There is a free app, Cuddler, C-U-D-D-L-R, launched in September, that already has about a quarter of a million downloads. Is there nothing that can't become an app? You just have to remove one vowel. Like Sneezer, S-N-Z-R, an app for the softest tissues within a five-block radius, or Pickler, P i c k l r, an app to connect consumers with brining specialists. Monsignor M o n s i g n r, matching ambitious bishops with honorary titles that are right for them. So on the show today, which is available over the app, just but stir. It's an antan twig, and lobstars will be awarded. And the Chicago subway system is about to get some ads, crazy ads, pictures of goats, squirrel facts. We'll talk to the man who can answer the question, huh? But first, there is a new Congress. You've seen the headlines, maybe next to words like opposition, president, veto, cajole, obstruct. Well, let's go back to a not actually simpler time to dissect how one president who's thought of as a master of congressional management actually wielded power. Julian Zelizer is a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton. His new book is The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. Thanks for coming in, Julian. Thanks for having me. So this book is i think the story of circumstances and institutional constraint i mean it's story of a lot of things but it's not really the story of johnson's personality as much as it is how he interacted with circumstance like i say do you think that's kind of a corrective of how we think about johnson
1: it is. It's a corrective of how we think about Johnson and all presidents. Uh, we always tend to think presidents have immense power. Johnson, in particular, is known for wheeling and dealing and schmoozing and getting things to go his way. And I want to understand uh, why were things such that he could actually get things done. And I didn't believe that he had the power to move Washington on his own. And most of the stuff, the great stuff that we associate with him and the... and the. Uh...
0: Comportment that he had, the treatment where he was so big and huge and would lean on people.
1: None of that would happen if Congress wasn't constituted in a way that was advantageous to his agenda. Right. There's certain basic things. After 1964, the Democrats have huge majorities in the House and Senate. They have a filibuster proof Senate and liberal Democrats are the ones who kind of rule the roost. And they're ready to pass a lot of bills and they're ready to pass things without him. Uh, If he didn't have that, Johnson could have schmoozed all he wanted. uh, But it wasn't as if Congress was going to move his legislation. Congress more powerful than we think it is. or is it just that their power relies in the power to say no? It's very powerful. John F. Kennedy you know, once said uh, that Congress looked a lot bigger and more powerful once he was in the White House than he did when he was actually on Capitol Hill. Uh, Congress can say no. They can obstruct. Congress can also push issues onto the agenda. And with issues like voting rights, Congress was actually able to force Lyndon Johnson to take action, and with the threat, they'll do it on their own. But by knowing Congress, not just being skillful, but being really knowledgeable, that did help. We can't discount that. Absolutely. The book isn't about Johnson being a bad politician or an ineffective politician. He was a good one. And when the opportunities emerged, he knew how to take advantage of them. That was his story. But Johnson always knew more than anyone that his power was limited. In some ways, that made him effective. He always used to say, the power I've got is nuclear, and I can't even use that. Uh, and I think he got that, and that's why he liked to move fast. He liked to move quickly. He tried to take advantage of the opportunity, the window, when it emerged. Is Congress less powerful
0: now? Because it does seem that uh, certain congressmen, certain senators, because of the system of chairmanship, which was just based on seniority, I think you, ha- you wrote, all you had to do is get elected once and then not fall asleep too much, and you become chairman eventually.
1: Was Congress actually a lot more powerful then? You could make the argument. I still think it's very... Very powerful, and I think that's what President Obama has discovered. Uh, but back then, you had these senior Southern Democrats who, as you said, they just moved up the ladder uh, every year, and all they had to do was stay alive, and eventually you were a committee chairman. And when they didn't want civil rights until 1964, they buried those bills, and there was nothing any president could do about it. Right. Them. There was one vote they allowed in 57, and that was a watered-down compromise exactly. that Johnson fought for what, it, before it was uh, even vice president. Exactly, and it took a, a grassroots movement. in 63 and 64 to force the issue, to force other members of Congress to say to the Southerners, this isn't going to last anymore. And now they say about Obama, he doesn't
0: schmooze, he doesn't turn on the charm, he's not like Johnson. So we've established, well, it's circumstances. But I also think that as you lay out back then, there were a lot more cards to play, like these days, pork barrel spending
1: earmarks are evil. Well, but for earmarks, we might not have had the
0: civil rights bill in 1964.
1: That's true. The story of the civil rights bill is filled with trades. And, uh, you know, the president gives one senator uh, a policy he wants with relation to water, which had nothing to do with civil rights. But he says, if you do this, uh, if you support civil rights, I'll give you this legislation you need for the region. And that kind of trading... I'll
0: give you $700,000 for Purdue University. Exactly. Exactly.
1: And he's constantly telling members of Congress that. Again, that wasn't the reason this stuff passed, but it was important once the opportunity was there to get things moving. Do you think if
0: uh, Lyndon Johnson, with his knowledge and his personal skills, were transplanted to the uh, affordable care era, would he have done things differently? Could he have done things differently than Obama? It does seem that you know, in retrospect, Obama did make some missteps, maybe he trusted Congress too much.
1: Well, he, I think he would have actually had a tough time still. You know, the, the second half of my book from 66 to 68 is all about uh, once Congress changes and once the conservatives are back in power, Johnson can't do much. And he's doing all the same tricks and he's doing the same dealing, but the legislation isn't moving because the liberals don't control Congress anymore and the civil rights movement is starting to dissipate and uh, fight among themselves. Uh, so I think Lyndon Johnson, even today, uh, would be quite frustrated and have trouble with this Congress. Well, that's another point that the book makes clear, that people
0: then were more motivated. Of course, there were, you know, the Civil Rights Movement, they were unbelievably frustrated. Um, People are less motivated now. You could criticize people, but you could also make the case that things are much, much, much less desperate than they
1: were. I think that's true. I think, you know, one thing Obama doesn't have is a a huge movement behind him. He had a a great campaign, but he hasn't had the same kind of movement. Civil rights, the union uh, leadership, 15 million members back then, was behind a lot of these bills. Obama doesn't have that, and Lyndon Johnson did. And part of it is there's been a lot of improvements. I mean, civil rights, voting rights. There was a desperation, uh, a rational one, uh, to get this done right away because we're talking about basic human rights, whereas some of those issues at least have have diminished. You know, you point out in 1957, a shocking statistic,
0: 20 percent of African-Americans in the South were registered to vote, 20 percent of those eligible to vote. That's seismic compared to now.
1: No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, the new movie Selma covers voting rights. And uh, it, in one scene, it actually takes you back into these towns to see how difficult the process uh, of actually voting was. Uh, and the voting rights had a huge, huge impact. Uh, that legislation in 65 boosted voting by millions in the African-American community. We can't forget that. In general, do you
0: oppose the great man theory of history or just specifically as it comes to
1: johnson or maybe the office of the presidency I, uh, the, the, there are great men, and, and leadership matters, but you have to understand why they're effective. And if you don't understand the context, if you don't understand the moment, you don't really get someone like Lyndon Johnson. So Johnson was good, and on voting rights, he was pushing. He wanted that bill to pass. But without the movement, without the protests in Selma, without members of Congress who were working to actually get something that would pass, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have had success. So you have to understand great men like that and, and understand the limits of their power. It's great work. Julian Zelizer
0: is author of The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress and the Battle for the Great Society. Thank you. Thank you. You're a Chicago commuter. You take the red line every day, get on at Addison. If it's a nice day, you might walk to Sheridan stop there. You're more likely to get a seat. So you take it all the way to Garfield. Sometimes you look out the window. Sometimes you look at your smartphone. But today you look up, you look at an ad. And you see this. Fact. You can't prove that squirrels aren't all plotting to sneak into our bedrooms and tickle us in our sleep. Hashtag squirrel truth. What the? The next day, you see an ad that says this. Vanessa, I'm not allergic to dogs anymore. Please come back. What's going on? Well, Ben Larrison is going on. He's a Chicago-based improver, comic, and general champion of municipal beneficence. Hello, Ben. (laughs) Hi, how are you? What the hell is What, what are we talking about here, <laughs> Basically,
2: I really like trying to do different projects that can insert absurdly into the world and hopefully make people's lives a little bit happier or sillier or get them to laugh or smile. And so I tried to find out what it would take to get ad space on CTA trains out in Chicago.
0: That's the Chicago and, Transit Authority. This is the, uh, their version of the subway and the L. Yeah, exactly, Yeah,
2: and uh, to figure out what it would take to buy ad space and then see if it would be possible to basically put up things that aren't ads at all and just kind of absurd jokes or random nothingness.
0: Or actual squirrel makes. truth, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. You can pretty much buy ad space if you want to, as long as you're not advocating for anything hateful or politically
0: charged, and so I tried to do it. Can you buy an ad on a train one ad at a time, or do you have to buy in bulk? They have minimum ad buys, so the least
2: you're allowed to buy, generally speaking, for the trains out here is 100. So for the kind of ads that I was looking to do and now doing, you had to buy at least 100 of the ads, and then you can pretty much say where you want them to go up and what the time frame is. And if you want to buy more ads, you can do that. And if you want to put up different kinds of ads, you know, they give you like three pieces of artwork on the house. And then if you want to put up, you know, 10 different kinds of ads, you can do that too. And it's kind of just a numbers game at that point.
0: So why'd you choose the red line? Was that, is that your line or is that where you think you'd find the most receptive audience for Squirrel Truthers? (laughs) It actually is just
2: far and away the most busy line. I was looking at some of the numbers that their advertising agency has And it turns out that the red line has far and away the highest ridership. So I'm going to be able to not necessarily force, but strongly encourage something like several million people over the course of a month to look at these insane, kind of ridiculous ads. Do the other
0: lines charge the same rates?
2: They do. It's the same rate for all the different lines, and I don't actually normally ride the red line, so I'm going to have to go out of my way to see a lot of these.
0: Yeah. I mean, you got to go out of your way just in the name of quality control. But it does tell you a little bit about the CTA, that they have the same rate <laughs> no matter how many people are seeing the ads or not. Yep. <laughs> So, uh, look now, you know, generations back, I'm sure there have been millions of people who've come before you stand on the shoulders of others who (laughs) had the idea to take out ads from someone who wants to get Vanessa back or wants to tell you about Squirrel Truth. But these people (laughs) all existed in an era we call pre-Kickstarter, right? Yeah. Basically, I've had kind of
2: the The long term goal for me for a lot of things is like trying to figure out things I should not be able to get away with and then find out how I can possibly pull them off and Kickstarter has been phenomenal for stuff like that because a major problem for trying to pull together things like this is just it costs a lot of money. you know it costs around four thousand dollars to do a project like this to buy the ad space and to create the artwork and I do not have (laughs) $4,000 just sitting around, unfortunately. So I kind of tried to make it something that people could be a part of, and it was pretty amazing to see folks from New York or Iowa or California or Canada or the UK just pitching in a few bucks here and a few bucks there to see this idea that they happen to, like, come together, even though they're not necessarily
0: ever going to see the actual ads that's true but at different pledge levels you had premiums (laughs) at a hundred dollars tell me about the flyer in the coffee shop premium oh yeah
2: i had a couple of people take me up on this i said that i will put a flyer up in a busy coffee shop here in chicago that says uh the person backer's name is a world-class human being and lover and that i would go back later in the week to make sure no one had taken it down so that really we can reach as many people as possible and let the people know just how great of a person and lover that backer is. Have you done that yet? I've done it for one of the backers, and I still have to wait on the other. I don't want to do it in the same shop because if I ever need to go in there for some reason, I would like to be allowed back.
0: Give me another squirrel truth that a redline rider might see in the coming months.
2: Fact. A squirrel has never, ever wished you a happy birthday. Like, not even once. Probably because squirrels are horrible monsters.
0: Hashtag squirrel truth. Hashtag squirrel truth. It won't wind up being, uh, this was all bought by some clever cell phone company. It's just yeah, Ben exactly. Larrison and the people who wanted him to post that the fact that they were great lovers in a coffee shop. Yeah, exactly. I mean, those are the real heroes, well, those are the real heroes, but another hero is Vanessa. I don't know if hero is the right word. She definitely has <laughs> discerning taste.
2: I just really enjoy, because you hear about the things where people put up like a bus ad as a wedding proposal, Yeah. and I just really have always wanted to see one person who has a really misguided notion of why they lost someone or why a relationship ended, trying to win them back, and I just really would love to see someone who genuinely thinks that someone broke up because they don't wear button-down shirts.
0: When the real reason that Vanessa broke up with him is that he was always posting his name in coffee shops, claiming that he's yeah, a great exactly. lover. Yeah. <laughs> ben Larison is the impresario behind the Chicago Transit Project. If you see facts about squirrels on the red train, it's because of Ben. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. An Antan Twig for 2015. Hello and welcome to the Antan Twig. What's an Antan Twig? Well, here's an entry from the Straight Dope Message Board from December 2014. Antan Twig is a term used by Mike Pesca on Slate's The Gist podcast. To refer to a three-week period, he claims it's an old word, like Fortnite for a two-week period. However, I can't find any reference in the OED or anywhere to its origin. So 18 replies and 2 weeks later this appeared from the guy who wrote the original post. I did get a reply from Mike Pesca. Here's the email exchange with him. Mike, I like your Antan twig segment and I like the word, but I can find no other reference to said word anywhere. I'm wondering if you could provide any more information on the origins of Antan twig. Mike, sure, I invented the word. All right, yes, I did invent the word. But I didn't invent invent the word. I mean, I consulted old English. Here's wmishedu slash medieval slash resources from 20 through the 60s numbers are in the form of an and twentig 21 so i just shaved off some syllables turned an and twentig into the ant twig i didn't make it up and i offer it to you the listener Use it, love it, grapple with it, as I grappled with the fact that my mouth is still writing checks that say 2014 that my body can't quite cash. On a show this week, I started off by saying, it's Wednesday, January 7th, 2014 from Sleet. No, 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 it's not. And on Monday show, Monday, January 5th, 2015, Adam Davidson and I were talking about Mario Cuomo, and Adam said, look, there is a very real and very deep conversation to be had right now in 2014 about... yeah. Hmm, no. And then I said... Of course, I'm judging it through a uh, 2014 lens. Well, maybe I was thinking about it from a 2014 perspective. I hope not. I mean, back then, oil was mightily expensive. Back then, Angelina Jolie hadn't yet met the Pope. Maybe she thought she'd never meet the Pope. Back then, ISIS was a despicable, evil, backward band of thugs who would go right up to the line of beheading a street magician. But in 2015, we know that... In the name of Allah, ISIS beheaded a street magician in Syria for insulting the Prophet. There are no words. But sorry about all the 2014 or 2015 confusion. And I'd like to also apologize for another journalistic flaw, but it's not my flaw. No, it's the trend story of 2015. It wasn't cuddling, as mentioned atop the show. It's hotter. It's wetter and it's more messy. You guessed it. It's soup. Whoa. Slow down, Mike. Soup is pretty sexy. You're right. But I'm talking about not just sexy soup. I'm talking about the most exciting soup of all. It's the soup that makes puree slurpers and chowder imbibers look like tiny men measuring their days in even tinier spoons. Oh, uh, you know what I'm laying down here?
1: First up on this
2: Friday, when it comes to food trends, mm. kale and quinoa, mm. they're so last year. Mm. So what is the hot new thing? Al told me. It's bone
0: broth. Bone broth. Bone right. broth.
2: It has become a bonafide craze.
0: With, oh. <laughs> oh they were all a froth over broth and not just the today show who turned into a brodo dodo oh no the wall street journal broth the new liquid lunch they say broth quite possibly the only dish that counts as both a comfort food and a health aid savory warming high in proteins and minerals Celebrity chef Marco Canora opened a takeout window in New York City devoted to selling cups of the steaming broth, which starts at $4 for an 8-ounce cup, because he's smart and we're not. So that story ran on January 2nd. Four days later, in the New York Times, they outdid the journal. They had pictures of broth that were even more sumptuous. In an article headlined, Bones Broth Bliss... Bone broth evolves from prehistoric food to paleo drink. By the way, evolves from prehistoric to paleo, those are synonyms. In fact, paleolithic is the earliest form of prehistory, the Stone Age, in fact. And I don't also think anyone evolves from a solid state to a drink. That's not how it happened with the dinosaurs, though it did happen to Shirley Temple. Hmm. And now a dish that is best served cold, the lobster. Our award for the listener who tweets, emails, Facebook, skywrites, strongly implies via facial gesture, or in any other way, promotes gistiness or enhances the gist experience. This, Antan Twiggs twigs Lopstar, is Chris McGee. He wrote to me, I've always felt kinship with you, as I suspect we share contemporaneous attendance at Emory University. I was there in 90 to 94 studying economics. Well, guess what? I was there 90 to 94, not studying much of anything, but excelling at double-spaced essays. Chris goes on. However, that is not the coincidence that motivated me to write. While listening to your Tuesday, December 30th edition of The Gist, you announced what you consider to be the most off-putting phrase of 2014. And a close second was water rights in the West. Well, while a grad student at Emory, I wrote my master's dissertation on water rights in Mormon, Utah, a public choice economic analysis. And then Chris goes on to agree that, yeah, it is boring, but that... Isn't the coincidence, which got really weird, when you announced that the most boring phrase of the year was medical device manufacturer, you guessed it, I moved on from water rights and now work for a leading medical device manufacturer. And what's even weirder than that is I'm emailing you from the couch of your apartment where I've just finished using your toothbrush, and this is even weirder, I'm using it not in the way you'd expect. Okay. I, Mike, made that toothbrush stuff up. But all the rest was cool and very coincidental. So maybe out there today is a professional chicken cuddler who immerses herself in a vat of broth and through snuggling with the denuded bird imparts in the resulting beverage flavor and a little bit of hepatitis. And maybe that woman's name is Angelina Jolie. If so, I think we have the next lobster of the Antan Twig. But for now, you, Chris McGee. Are that lopstar? And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzia is on the cutting edge of 2015 foodstuffs trends. You know what it is? Backwash. Backwash. It's the new aperitif. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate podcasts, marks his territory through urinating, defecating, and by scratching, rubbing, and biting trees and biting quinoa, but mostly trees. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate, is the coconut sugar of podcasting. You can go to iTunes and subscribe. We're on slate.com slash just email. You go there to get an email every day that says the show is up. Do the same thing with Yo. Download that app, Yo. Sign up for podcast, and then every day, right to your phone, no matter what you're doing, It'll tell you The Gist is ready. Right now on Facebook.com slash SlateGist, I've linked to the Slate article about other NFL erotica. In addition to the NFL erotica I teased yesterday on the show, they have several more examples. The Chris Christie one is good. The Gist, we're like the Greek yogurt of podcasting in that we're full of culture, a little tart, and we inspire our consumers to say, no way. Thanks for listening. I'm David Plotz. This week on the Slate
1: Political Gab Fest, New York cops stop arresting people should they be punished. Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.